0: New York City is home to musicians, poets, writers, and countless stage, TV, and film celebrities. But not all of them are still living. Many have chosen to spend eternity here at Woodlawn Cemetery in the North Bronx. Good morning, I'm George Bodarchy, and this is Cityscape. On this morning's show, we'll explore the history behind this sprawling cemetery and some of the notables buried here. Also today, Henry Hudson on modern-day New York. We asked a clairvoyant to put us in touch with the English explorer. He kind of, like, laughed at me. I reminded him of
1: a woman at court.
0: Glad you're with us for Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In his book, The Secret City, author Fred Goodman digs deep into the history of Woodlawn Cemetery and several of its long-term inhabitants. I met up with Goodman at Woodlawn, which is the final resting place for a number of prominent New Yorkers. We're standing at an intersection in Woodlawn at
2: Heather Avenue, where uh, sort of become, they used to call 52nd Street, uh, you know, the, the jazz corner of the world. And uh, in some ways, this little part of the cemetery has sort of become the jazz corner of the world, too. We're standing in front of uh, the grave of uh, Duke Ellington, the famous jazz band leader and composer. And uh, when Duke Ellington died here in uh, 1974, and there's a little rise over here across the road. That whole hill is now covered in tombstones. But if you had been here in 1974, there were very few grave sites there. And it was a rainy day like today, and the entire hill was covered with people under umbrellas. There were several thousand people here for Duke Ellington's interment. It was at the time the biggest event they'd ever had at Woodlawn.
0: His marker is so much more understated than this one over here for well, Miles it's Davis. interesting.
2: I mean, he's buried under this big, beautiful beech tree, and he's also sort of the only, he's the only person at Woodlawn who's got two headstones, Duke Ellington. There were two matching crosses on either side of the beach, and then there were uh, little footstones where he and some of his family memories are buried. But across the street is Miles Davis. Now, what's really interesting, the Miles Davis is a slab, a big, beautiful slab of ebony stone, and it says on it, in memory of Sir Miles Davis... Now, what's really fascinating to me is that, like, no one ever called Miles Davis Sir Miles Davis, you know. So when I was doing the book, I looked into this, and it turns out he got the Sir title very late in life. He was knighted by, you know, the successor to the Knights of Malta, which, you know, if you've read the Maltese Falcon, right, that's the same order of knights that was uh, uh, set up by the Vatican, you know, at, dur- during the um, Crusades and becomes the, the impetus for the story of the Maltese Falcon, right? It doesn't really exist anymore. It's it sort of petered out in the 19th century, and it's come back as essentially a social organization that does good. They raise money for hospitals and things like that. It's a charity. So putting your, your name Sir Miles Davis because you've been knighted by the Knights of Malta is a little like putting president on your tombstone because you ran the rotary. But I thought, why did Miles Davis do this? Why would he put Sir Miles Davis? And then it occurred to me, well, he's across the road from Duke Ellington, right? So he's sort of like one-upping Duke Ellington in death. And, and in fact, it was very much on his mind according to his family.
0: Now, why are there stones on top of his grave marker? Well,
2: that's a tradition uh, Jewish visitors to cemetery sites leave a stone as a marker that someone's been to a grave. So you see that on the Miles Davis. You also Herman Melville is buried here. You know, if you go to Herman Melville's grave, there's always like, you know, two dozen stones on top of his his headstone. But incidentally, in the years since Duke came here, this little area of the cemetery has become very much a place for jazz musicians. You know, there's Duke and this Miles Davis. Behind Miles Davis, um, in an unmarked grave is the jazz dancer Harold Nicholas of the Nicholas Brothers. Uh, across the road over there is Lionel Hampton, the vibraphone player and jazz leader. And over there is Illinois Jaquette, tenor player. Uh, Max Roach, the drummer, is buried here as well, although uh, he has yet to have a, a
0: headstone put in. Is Woodlawn planning that out?
2: Well, they actually did after, you know, Miles bought the plot across from Duke Ellington. Uh, you know, they went to the musicians local and they said, you know, look, we'll, we'll put some, you know, sights aside for you of people would like to buy, and in fact, you know, people did, and, it, and, it's, and it's become sort of a preferred place, especially for jazz musicians.
0: You mentioned that Herman Melville is buried here, and what's interesting about him is that he was better known after he died than when he was alive.
2: That's right. I mean, I, I, I sort of remark on that in my book that, you know, this 300,000 people buried in woodlawn, and Herman Melville might be the only one who's better known now than when he died, and it's true. You know, he did die in obscurity. He died uh, in the 1890s, You know, the last 30 years of his life were not particularly successful. You know, he had been a best-selling author early on. He wrote romantic novels about the South Sea. And then Moby Dick was kind of like not very successful. People kind of scratched their heads. And he wrote a book after that called Pierre that dealt with incest. And that really kind of finished him as a novelist. And the the next 35 years, uh, he had had rough going. So when he died, he died really in obscurity. And it wasn't until the early part of the 20th century that... uh, Moby Dick was really sort of rediscovered, mostly in England first.
0: Just how big is this cemetery?
2: Well, it's 400 acres, and there are over 300,000 people buried here. Uh, it's really an extraordinary place. It was opened in the 1860s, uh, and it's beautiful rolling hills. You know, it's a nature setting, which was the style you know that they did back then. You know, this is older than the city parks movement. So at the time that people would build these cemeteries, it was a place where families would go you know there was no central park you know you couldn't drive out of the city in fact it was even difficult to take a train out of the city so what happens was of course the train does run by here and you can get up here what's now metro north you know but it used to be the old new york railroad uh, and the subway comes later on and all those things affect it because it's built in the 1860s and it's easier to get here than greenwood which was in brooklyn right before there was no brooklyn bridge you know it was a ferry ride and Women didn't get on the ferry generally, which meant, you know, if your husband or son or a family member was being buried in Greenwood, you might not go if you were a woman. So this became sort of the preferred place. And, in fact, you see there were these massive mausoleums here where it became the preferred burying place during the Gilded Age. Really extraordinary mausoleums built by America's leading architects. So who do we have buried here from that era? Well, most famously, Jay Gould, you know, sort of the mega robber baron. And he's, it's, it's fascinating. He's, built, he's, he's buried in a uh, structure that looks kind of like the Parthenon. You can't miss it, but it has no name on it, right? And the reason that was done was it was not uncommon in the 1890s for graves to be robbed, and bodies to be ransomed back to families. So at the time that Gould died, you know, the, the place was guarded and there was no name on it. And, of course, he's, he's in an enormous area where there's no other grave sites, and it would cost you $2.5 million today for that plot.
0: I thought you were going to say people were stealing jewelry off the bodies, but they're actually stealing the bodies. Yeah, there
2: was a famous, famous case. This is particularly one in Staten Island in the 1890s where a body was exhumed and ransomed back to a family. So... Um, it it was a concern among the wealthy at the time but what was interesting of course is that since people came to the cemetery it made a lot of sense to build an ornate mausoleum because you were lobbying history to remind people who came here you know a family would come on a saturday or a sunday and they might have lunch in the in, in the cemetery you know it was it was a pastoral place that you could get to so if you had an ornate mausoleum it was an effective way of reminding everybody how important you were now You know, we still have massive fortunes today, but it's not the same. I mean, you know, when Bill Gates dies, he's not going to be in one of these marble monsters, you know, like Jay Gould is in. It just doesn't make any sense anymore. Instead, people have foundations. You know, that's how they sort of lobby history.
0: This cemetery is filled with amazing artistry. Death has inspired many to create beautiful things.
2: Yeah. Well, one of my favorites, there was a, a a sculptor named Attilio Piccirilli, you know, who had a studio in the St. Anne's section of the Bronx. Uh, And he and his brothers were from Carrera, you know, with a marble uh, center in Italy. And they had a long tradition of stone cutting in their family. they came here... And people may not realize, you know, that most sculptors do not cut the stone themselves. They make a model, and it's given to a cutter, and the cutter does it. Today, that's all done. It's computerized. But back then, of course, you know, you needed somebody who really knew how to cut marble. And the Piccirilli brothers were among the best, and in fact, the Piccirillis did... uh, William French Smith, Lincoln for the Lincoln Memorial was one of their most famous ones. They did the lions in front of the public library on 42nd Street. They did the statues on the uh, Manhattan Bridge. I mean, the freeze over the stock exchange. Just a lot, a lot of stuff around the city. But one of the brothers, Attilio, was also a sculptor, a very talented sculptor in his own right. And the Pichurili site is here. This beautiful grave work there, and when you walk through the cemetery, you know you can sometimes recognize some of the Pichurili things at various grave sites. He was a great friend of the Mayor Fiorella Laguardia, who's buried here, and he did the headstone for Laguardia's first wife and infant daughter, which is a really a beautiful, beautiful thing. That's I'm pleased to say has since been restored since the book came out and talked about this, which is that uh, when his daughter was born picture really made a little statue for LaGuardia of an infant taking its first step that the mayor kept on his desk. When his wife and the daughter died two years later, he made and they're buried together here in Woodlawn, he made an image of a mother with her outstretched arms, and that same image of the infant taking its first step as the headstone, and it's it's here and in, in a remarkable piece.
0: But Laguardia is not buried with them. The mayor is not buried that, with them.
2: That's correct. Laguardia is buried here, but he's buried in another section of the cemetery, along with his second wife and his stepdaughter. So you know, sort of life went on. He's also buried uh, right next to one of his proteges, who was a very one of my favorites in the cemetery, a very colorful fellow named Vito Marc Antonio who was a congressman from East Harlem for many decades, very uh, important figure and also a very um, controversial figure. I mean, he would be like, you know, uh, Sean Hannity's favorite whipping boy if he was alive today because he was uh, a leftist, socialist, maybe communist. I mean, supported, you know, the Soviets right up until the invasion of Poland, you know, uh, that kind of thing, but was a tremendous advocate for, you know, his district and was much beloved and was undefeated. You know, they finally had to institute special laws in New York City basically to keep him off the ballot because he won at various times as, as on the socialist line, on the Democratic line, on the Republican line. He, he ran on any, you know, if, if Martians landed in New York, he would have started a Martian
0: party. There's another New York City mayor buried here, Mayor Mitchell, who tried to maintain calm during a polio epidemic.
2: That's correct. Uh, John Peroy Mitchell, there are five mayors in New York buried in Woodlawn. But John Peroy Mitchell was somebody who got my interest. He actually grew up right around the school, right near Fordham University, and um, was a reformed mayor and uh, had been sort of a crusading DA. You know, he sent uh, the Manhattan and Bronx borough presidents to sing Sing and then went on to win on a third party candidate as we all know you know New York frequently pre- kicks out third party candidates you know because it's always been a one party town and was unfortunately only mayor for one term but you know, ran the city during a, a terrible polio epidemic in the teens that uh, literally shut the city down. Schools were shut. Uh, many public institutions, children were not allowed in movie theaters. You know, it, it was a devastating thing and uh, really, you know, reminded me a lot. I, I happened to write the book in, in in the two years following 9-11, you know, and found myself really thinking about, you know, what were other crisis moments in the city's history and how did people deal with them, and that was the thing that, that drew me to Mitchell who got thrown out of office, by the way. He was a very effective mayor, but not a politician. He was a lot like the first term Bloomberg. You know, he wanted to be the CEO of the city and didn't go for any of that baby kissing stuff. And died tragically, you know, became a pilot in the American Expeditionary Force, was down in in Lake Charles, Louisiana, training, and apparently forgot to buckle the belt in the plane and was thrown out of the plane.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how many people here died tragically, whether it was a horse carriage accident or something like it.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, there's you know, a million ways to live and a million ways to die, but, and, they're, and they're all here at Woodlawn.
0: There's a woman buried here by the name of Ruth Nichols. She was an aviator. Tell us about her.
2: Well, she really fascinated me. I mean, Ruth Nichols was um, a contemporary of Amelia Earhart's. And, um, in fact, was, along with Earhart, a founder of a group called the 99s, which was sort of a pioneering club, you know, an association of female pilots. And, like Earhart, she set many air records and was continuing to fly into her 50s. You know, at the age of 58, uh, you know, she was still flying uh, jet planes and trying to learn how to fly jet planes and, in fact, wanted to try out for the Mercury mission, you know, and did so as she didn't realize it was a publicity stunt, but, you know, did so. She was a very interesting woman who ultimately took her life, and, um, and it's hard to say why. She was, you know, a tough, tough New Yorker. How did the cemetery affect
0: the development of the neighborhood surrounding it?
2: Well, there wasn't really much here, except for the train stop when they opened in the 1860s. But on 233rd Street, what happens is you start to get businesses that are related to the cemetery, taverns and, and restaurants and undertakers and, you know, stone cutters and that sort of thing. And the other thing that's in this neighborhood at that point of is what they used to call the pipeline. The, quote, Croton Aqueduct in the water system comes right through this neighborhood, okay? And, in fact, it's still where the sandhogs the guys who dig the tunnels, their union hall is on Katona Avenue still, You know, a lot of Irish immigrants still come to this neighborhood, and it really has to do with the sand hog tradition in the neighborhood. That was the effect. The other interesting thing that happens when the train comes, the subway comes on Jerome Avenue. This is the end of the line, the Jerome Avenue train. Then you start getting a different kind of people coming to be buried at Woodlawn. Harlem, and specifically, becomes, you know, this is the preferred place you know, during the Harlem Renaissance, I, you know, and one of the people I wrote about was the great poet, County Cullen, you know, who, who's buried here in what, what I think of as the cheap seats. He's buried way up in a very plain area of Woodlawn, but he was a great and fascinating guy. And there are a lot of, you know, uh, interesting people. You know, Coleman Hawkins, the jazz saxophonist, is, is buried here as is, uh, you know, at a brick top. And, you know, it, it, it was really becomes also that representative of New York. Tell me more about the cheap seats. What is that area like? Well, it varies. I mean, you know, Woodlawn, like I say, it has these extraordinary mausoleums, you know, made of pink granite and, you know, all kinds of whatever you could, marbles and things. I mean, when we came in, we passed a mausoleum built uh, for Bech, you know, the the Wall Street financier. That's uh, in the manner of the Temple of Isis from Egypt. Next to it is a reproduction, you know, of a... uh, a French uh, chapel, you know, I mean, just from the, from the 1500s. I mean, they're just extraordinary things here. There, there are things built by McKim, Mead and White, you know, and, and Hunt and Hunt and, you know, just the leading architectural firms of their day. And if you want, you can buy, there are used mausoleums for sale, by the way, you can buy architecturally significant mausoleum built by Hunt and Hunt for like $3 million here today, you know, that kind of thing, slightly used. (laughs) But Of course, it's like the city. Everyone is here, and there are these sort of uh, sections which really are just, you know, footstones, and it's sort of a cheek-to-jowl area, you know, it's not as lovely, there aren't as many trees. You know, some places, there are some very old sections where the ground is sort of heaved and settled and things are very uneven. But, you know, look, it's it's like New York. It's neighborhoods.
0: Didn't Leona Helmsley sue the cemetery (laughs) because they built a mausoleum in front of her husband's grave and that was blocking his view, so to speak, or something like that?
2: Yeah. uh, She was unhappy because they built a community mausoleum across the way from where her husband, Harry Helmsley, was buried. It was sort of an ongoing tiff for a while, and I, I think she eventually... She, she eventually uh, settled with the cemetery, and uh, she herself was interred up in Westchester.
0: What would you say is the most frequently visited grave here at Woodlawn?
2: Well, you know, it's interesting. There are a couple of them. and The Miles davis duke Ellington corner where we're standing is certainly one of them. Herman Melville is one of them. But also in recent years, uh, you know, Celia Cruz, you know, the great uh, Cuban singer, uh, is buried here and she was you know really very savvy i mean she she left instructions that if she couldn't be buried in cuba she wanted to be buried in the bronx and they picked a plot that is within walking distance of the subway stop and a lot of people come here i mean i never come to woodlawn that there aren't fresh flowers you know and notes from her fans and it, and it, and it really is you know one of the more Interesting because it's recent, you know. It's it's one of the most visited and, and venerated sites of Woodlawn. It's really quite lovely, you know, to see people connecting with it. And and it would be nice to see. I mean, as someone who took an interest in Woodlawn, you know, I'd, I'd love to see people come out. I mean, the notion that a cemetery, you know, is a depressing place is immediately dispelled. I mean, it's just endlessly fascinating to walk around here.
0: You mentioned that you started your project after 9/11. Is that what drew you to the cemetery, trying to deal with your feelings? You were looking for a place of solace. Well, I think I was
2: just, you know, like most people, a little bit unsure of getting my feet under myself in those days. And, you know, I'm a bicyclist and I bike around the Bronx a lot. And I just happened to come in here one day and it really just struck my fancy. And, and I found that, you know, it was really a good place to deal with those sort of questions of like, you know, is the world getting away from me? That,
0: you know, a cemetery is a good place to deal with. You unearthed a lot of stories I guess no pun intended there, but which one, or intended, (laughs) which one surprised you most? You know, I was really fascinated
2: by County Cullen's life, you know, the poet, because he had two lives, you know, he had a life um, as sort of the darling of the Harlem Renaissance, you know, he was really uh, young, you know, in his early 20s, he was one of the most celebrated young examples, you know, of black intelligence and achievement. And then his star kind of faded, you know. And he had a very good, as far as I can tell, and very satisfying second life as a high school teacher. Um, And one of the things that fascinated me was going through, um, he went to DeWitt Clinton and he taught at a middle school in Harlem. And there was a DeWitt Clinton newspaper and uh, there was an article in it by a student who went back to interview County Cullen as the teacher who had the greatest influence on him. And it was a DeWitt Clinton 17-year-old student named James Baldwin. So that got me thinking about, you know, the relationship between Baldwin and Cullen. And you can certainly see the impact that, you know, Cullen had on him in his work. So I wrote a story about that, imagining what that meeting was like. But to see the, you know, the sort of ways that lives intersect, you know, that was always the fascinating thing.
0: Fred Goodman, thank you so much for your time. George, thanks a lot. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This year marks the 400th anniversary of Henry Hudson's landing in Manhattan, which got us thinking, how harrowing was Hudson's journey here? And what would he think of today's New York? We brought in clairvoyant Janet Horton to see if we could connect with the English explorer.
1: When your producer, Andrew Hirschman, called me and asked me if I'd like to be interviewed and if I might be able to channel Henry Hudson, I got off the phone, and right away he started to come to me. I'll tell you what I got, okay? He's on a boat. It's a big Spanish galleon-type boat. He's under real true pressure. I mean, every day you don't know if you're going to live or die. He's the captain of this boat, but it sure isn't like a Hollywood movie. He needs to keep control of these men. These men aren't all there on this boat because they want to be. He has to use violence sometimes. He's afraid for his own life. I get him at about 50. The biggest complaint, aside from fear for his life doesn't want anybody getting up behind him, is that his feet really, really hurt. Because of the situation he's in, staying in control, he cannot take his boots off. He has not had his leather boots off his feet in many months. Wow. Okay? His feet are sore. He's not sure if he's got broken toes. I mean it's really rugged on this boat. You want me to keep going? I've I've got more. Yeah. All right. All right. So, uh he lives in fear of a mutiny. Now, I was thinking when I started to ask him if he was there, You know, my image in my head is we're sailing up the Hudson, discovering it. Oh, my God, what a vista, what a joy. And his response was, are you kidding? Are there Indians who are going to kill us on the shore? We can see them through the trees sometimes. The men want to land. They want off the boat. Can I get them back on the boat if I land? Or are they going to scatter into the trees? Some of them will never come back. Will the Indians be there? I mean, could there be 10? Could there be 100? Could there be 1,000?
0: We don't know. So he's thinking about the potential dangers on the island of Manhattan.
1: He's totally thinking of the dangers, totally thinking of the – that's what his consciousness is. It's like um, you you ask an actress on The View about being famous, and she's going, what are you talking about. I'm on the bus. I'm just trying to make sure I've brushed my teeth before I go sing on that TV show, you know? So he's giving me his day-to-day. Now I realize that he's finishing up. It feels like he's in his last week of life. And he's on a boat. He's unbelievably cold. He's with other sailors, but he doesn't trust them. And the real heartbreaking part of it is that some of these are his own relatives. These are men in his own family. It feels like a mutiny has already taken place. He's still physically, vital. He feels 50s, 50-ish, okay? And um, that's the way it feels like it ended for him. He doesn't go that far with me, but I do get People from the beyond all the time. When, when a client has a tarot card reading, I'll get grandma, dad, a sibling who died in an accident, that kind of thing. And uh, we don't have to go through the actual death experience again. I'll get taken right up to it. So that's what Henry Hudson. Oh, and he had some reaction to me. Okay. <laughs> he kind of like laughed at me. I reminded him of a woman at court. The situation that he was in was so rugged, and here I was, was, you know, makeup on my face and my hair done and and color on my nails. He just, I reminded him of these women at court that he only saw, you know, like once every 10 or 20 years when he was reporting in. And that's... Um, like an exotic bird. He, he called me an exotic bird, like a parrot.
0: Henry Hudson, as we know, was looking for a northwest passage to India when he ended up exploring this region and coming upon Manhattan. Is he disappointed that he didn't find what he was looking for initially? I
1: got that the day-to-day stress was what, of being on the boat, was what overwhelmed him. We today have no concept of how tough that was. I listened to all of this, and then I said back, Henry, do you realize that the city on the entire globe is on a river called the Hudson River, named after you? I mean, you are one of the great men in history. Do you realize this? I don't think he did. And I don't think he really cares that much. But it stopped him. Like, wow. I mean, you did. We remember you. You did immensely great things. then his thoughts went back to his aching feet and how cold it
0: was. Those poor aching feet. Oh,
1: Isn't that an amazing... Yeah,
0: he needs a foot massage in the afterlife.
1: He needs a doctor.
0: (laughs) Did you ask him what he thinks of Manhattan today? Clearly, it's a lot different than the Manhattan he saw.
1: You know, I didn't get that far. How about if we go to the tarot cards? Okay. All right. And he's not in this state now, by the way. He was just communicating with me as Henry Hudson. I think our souls go on from lifetime to lifetime. Oh, and that was the next thing that happened. I asked him, Okay, have you been reincarnated? Who are you today? And immediately I got him, as a young, geeky guy, glasses, Germanic, Swedish, something like that, his soul's path... Was exploration into the great new territory. He's doing space. Only this time, he's not getting on that vessel himself.
0: But he's still exploring.
1: He's designing it. He's doing something at the computers and something major, major designing. And I wonder if whoever that is now knows that he was Henry Hudson before. Hmm. All right. Um, What was your question?
0: I was wondering what Henry Hudson thinks of today's Manhattan.
1: Henry. All right. The first card is the Three of Pentacles in reverse, which has to do with being the polished professional and getting everything right and it being organized. And this card is in reverse, which is kind of like saying it's a brilliant mess. Uh, The second card is the Two of Cups which represents a partnership formed, especially a romance. I'm going to take this as the beauty of the unity between the new world and the old world, uniting. I mean, wow, whoever expected that? The Two of Swords is, even now, the two sides of the world is trying to unite. It's the concept of of two balanced powers— That's really deep, Henry, because that is what's going on. And uh, the King of Cups, I'm going to take that as Obama. The King of Cups is the ideal leader and um, the hope of the world. That's what I'm getting from these cards. The King of Cups can also refer to himself as, here is my gift to you. You know, here's what I did in history.
0: Well, Janet Horton, thank you so much for coming in. You're welcome. Janet Horton is a clairvoyant. She's working on a memoir called Tales of the Tarot. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boracchi. My thanks to producer Andrew Hirschman. Have a great weekend.